0: This is episode number 664 of the Inner Fight Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Inner Fight Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for downloading, tuning in, listening to the show, no matter where you are. Hope you're having a fantastic day. If you're driving your car, please do continue to listen, but please do drive safely. This show is brought to you by our old sponsors, Mr. Street Paleo, but we cannot forget. Those new guys that I've been giving a shout out to. Rob Jones and the Start to Run program. Steph with the Ladies Run Club. And of course, new updates here at In A Fight. All the classes are on. Circuit classes on. And also, yoga classes are fully on. And maybe for some of you, by the time that you listen to this show, we'll be interested to hear that kids yoga is also on. innerfight.com slash yoga to find out all about that. And yes, I do go. Yes, I was up there on the terrace Last Tuesday, Tuesday before, 6.30 in the morning, beautiful bright sunshine and, well, not super bright because that would make it very hot but just really awesome that time of day, very peaceful and a great class with Oshin. So check it all out, that is what's going on. My guest this week is a gentleman called Dan Cooper who spent 18 years of his life in the Australian Special Forces and although we can't ask him all the gory details of that, Dan does actually talk about that, some of the lessons that he learned and really this guy fascinated me. He has a degree, two masters and is currently studying a PhD which is pretty awesome when you hear about what he's studying in. He is a guy who has taken on incredible challenges, physical, mental and emotional and overcome them. In this show, we actually talk about how we disconnect those three pillars of the human being, the physical, the mental and emotional, whereas we're all one. So without further ado, let's jump into today's show. Zoom one again. Dan is based down in Australia. The quality's good. Stick with it if it's not couple of places it gets choppy i'm sure you'll get the picture from dan he's a great guy thanks a lot for listening here's dan cooper welcome back to another episode of the show ladies and gentlemen as i said this one i'm super excited about absolute belter from brisbane via our best friend that has been our best friend for the last seven or eight months zoom dan cooper how are you buddy
1: yeah i'm good thanks mate thanks for having me on it's real pleasure to be on your show
0: No, mate, I appreciate it, and wow, mate, we were just saying before, like, where the show came from and different people we've had on, different stories, mate, you've got a hell of a story, and I guess, and I have to be careful because we're not supposed to talk too much about it, but mate, 18 years, Australian Special Forces, I know there's stories you can't share, holy shit, mate, there must be some learnings from 18 years in the Special Forces, tell us a little bit about that, mate.
1: Uh, it's funny like um it wasn't until i was out for about a year and you kind of look back on it and you're like wow that's a massive chunk of my life gone sort of thing and in that environment so when i first went in it's kind of as a young bloke you look at it as a bit of fun you think this should be pretty exciting be some good challenges um you know it'd just be a good career opportunity and at that stage there was nothing going on it was pre-9-11 So I went in, and 9/11 pretty much happened just after I went through the selection course, and then from there, sort of two decades almost passed overnight. So you you sort of you're a young bloke, you turn around, or you wake up one morning, and then you sort of you know you've been on deployments for a dozen times, you know, 17 years, 15 to 17 years has passed, and you're starting to wonder, you know, what's next. But um, yeah, like it was, um, I sort of look at it, that I was really lucky in the time period I was serving sort of thing. So there was very much peace time up until then. And then I came in almost perfect timing. It depends how you look at it, whether you want to be busy or whether you just want to go to work.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it was kind of perfect timing because my thoughts, if you go into that job, you're serious about we? Yeah. And then, yeah, right. it's sort of sorry, perfect time in history.
0: Yeah, but that's, that's all good. Keep... Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, mate. let let me, I want to rewind a little bit. What motivates someone to apply for, like, we see all these documentaries on the outside. And this show, folks, is not going to be just about Special Forces. Dan is a lot more than that and has become and is becoming a lot more than that. But, mate, we see, we read books. I think the first book that I ever read about, like, Special Forces was probably Andy McNabb, Bravo Two Zero. And, you know, you're, like, super excited as a 15-year-old kid, like, this is amazing, <laughs> these guys are... They're. But what motivated you to, to, to sort of apply, mate?
1: Uh, I guess I've always been interested in it. So I was a young bloke used to watch a lot of army movies, like most kids probably do. Sort of, you know, grew up on Chuck Norris and those sort of guys running around. Yeah. Um, and then you sort of, you, obviously, you grow up, but there's still a mystique about the special forces and what they do. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of information or there was nowhere near as much information as what there is now about them. It was just kind of, you know, this secret world almost. And I guess for me, it was more just around, you know, whether I could get there, whether I had it in me to do that challenge. And then, you know, kind of almost uh, a question of, could I perform in almost the ultimate test? You know, what I mean, like if you go away with special operations and you're involved in sort of some of these high consequence environments, where you're working in these areas, you know, can you stand up to the ultimate test? So I guess that wow. was always a question I had burning away was, you know, in the ultimate question, could I answer it type of thing. So, wow. um, but at the time I joined, I never actually anticipated that I would get into these situations, sort of thing. But I guess it was just like a real curiosity and a deep desire to see, you know, exactly what I was made of. Uh, And then, you know, you sort of think, if someone's got there, you know, can I get there? Have I got it in me to get through selection? Can I get, you know, up to the grade I need to? So, I don't know, just like a, basically a question to see what I was made of, I suppose.
0: Were you, as as a kid, you say obviously you watch stuff like that, mate, but were you into sport? Were you into, like, were, were you mad about physical, like, challenges what what was your sort of like upbringing like
1: yeah i was always pretty active so i played a fair bit of sports uh, at school i sort of played soccer and then on the weekends i played rugby league over here i uh, grew up sort of semi-rural and there's only a small school so we didn't really have much sports programs there i think mean, there was 80 kids in total in the whole right. school from grade one to six and then the high school was probably about 800 so it was a bit bigger but again limited sports programs so A lot of time running around in the bush, riding bikes, riding horses, motorbikes, these sort of things, just active, you know, like bow hunting sort of stuff that kids used to do when you had a bit of space. Um, So I've always been uh, active and into sport and that sort of thing. I I wanted to play rugby league as I grew up. That was my actual ambition. Um, But, you know, like most kids, you kind of just get filtered out and then there's just a low percentage to go on through. But it was more once I was in the military, I took a sort of uh, more serious focus on the physical fitness. I just knew that that underlined my ability to do the job as things got tougher and tougher. So that's when I sort of started looking at that in a little bit more interest or sort of looking for the best way to go about preparing myself to do the job.
0: Right. I want to ask the day that you got accepted for the special forces, how do you feel? Like, I guess there's all this anticipation. I want to ultimately test myself, as you said, and that selection process is probably super exciting, very stressful in a number of ways. But then you get that acceptance and it becomes real. How do
1: you feel? Yeah, you feel um, like obviously you're pretty excited about the concept, you know, because your life, there's all these unknowns now that lay in front of you, sort of thing, yeah. where your life's just taking a pretty big turn. Uh, yeah. But yeah, like when you go on it, It's just um, like this fear that you're not going to be good enough. You know, there's all this sort of, you go through all your negative self-talk, that sort of thing, and you start to wonder whether you can get there. But uh, when I was on the course, it was pretty much I was just going to get to the end. Regardless of what happened, the decision would be then. So I wouldn't withdraw withdraw on my own. I'd either get pulled off medically or I'd get to the end. And then you get to the end and you're in such an exhausted state that you kind of don't really have much emotion about it. And then you sort of go in and it's one by one. And then you're sort of told whether you're successful or whether you're not, you don't see anyone that goes before you sort of thing. So it's yeah. that you go one way or you go the other way. And one way leads to the airport. The other one leads onto the base more or less. <laughs> so you, you go through, you get told, yeah, you're in. And then sort of just this, you know, real relief that the last 12 months has been worth it. And you sort of just did a three week slog for, you know, for an actual reason. Mate, you said something there that I want to pick
0: up on. You said, I'd either make it through or I'd be pulled off medically. That's a fucking insane mindset, mate. Where did you get that from? Like, you've not even started your journey. You've not even started these 18 years. And you're like, I'm going to get through or I'm literally in an ambulance. Like, people are listening and going, how do I get that mindset?
1: Yeah. I I don't know. uh, I think it just came from the people I was around when I was younger. So my old man, uh, grandparents, these sort of things. So they were all just uh, really sort of stoic people for lack of a better term. So that was like, if you've got a job to do, you just get on and get it done. And as problems arise, you just solve them. So I'd sort of always grown up with that. And then for me, if I was going to try for selection, it it wasn't a half-hearted attempt. Like you don't train for something and go on it and then just quit on yourself. So I've always thought that quitting is like a disease where if you quit once, it's now an option and you can quit in the future where if you never introduce quitting as an option, then it's never something that you're going to look at to do down the track. So I've always thought, you know, once I start something, there's no quitting. Um, But in saying that, there's obviously a difference between understanding when you're in a position where you you physically can't go on or you're going to do yourself a, a large injury or things are going to get worse as opposed to just quitting because you're uncomfortable, things are getting difficult. So, you know, like there is understanding where that threshold lies of doing damage. Yeah. But, you know, like it, it, for me it was never a mental choice to quit something. Like it would be forced out of something.
0: It's interesting, mate, the, the way that you describe that, I, I, I've used that a lot in, in, in saying there's two types of pain. There's a good pain and a bad pain. The bad pain is when you're actually really going to hurt yourself and the good, and, and then you should stop, whereas good pain, you can actually, you know, yeah, it's a bit uncomfortable, but, but you can get through it. So it's a, it's a similar <laughs> – yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it, it, it's a similar thing. What, the, where, with that mindset, though, Dan, where do you make the decision? Because I'm pretty sure if we had a lot of time and, 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 and we don't – we're trying to get this done in about 45 minutes, but if we had a lot of time, mate, you'd probably have stories for us where – actually you did push so hard that you did cause yourself harm physically, maybe mentally. And some of it might be permanent. Like you probably maybe even still carrying some injuries today. So how do you sort of balance that out? You, you've got this mindset. I don't want to hurt myself or I don't want to go, you know, I'll, I'll be smart and I'll pull back, but I'm pretty sure sometimes you've pushed over that limit, right?
1: Yeah. It's a, that's a tough one. Um, Because a lot of times when you are at that point where you're starting to think about that decision, you're so fatigued anyway that you're not really fully aware or you're not making good decisions. So um, for me, if it's anything related to sort of like thermoregulation, then i will always err on the side of resting or recovering rather than quitting. So a lot of times I'll just take some time, give myself some space to recover so I can think about a better strategy to go forward. So maybe it's more of a pivot as opposed to quitting. But um, yeah, like I did, the first time I did 100k ultra, I've only done one. And it was um, more to prove that you could do high intensity training in lower volumes and still get through 100k ultra. Ultimately, I can't. It was a fail. I got to the end, but it was exactly that. So I couldn't walk from the finish line to the car pretty much. So my wife just watched me sort of drag myself and I poured myself into the backseat of the car. She drove me home. I could barely climb into bed. Uh, I recovered pretty quick, but there was a fall. But, you yeah, like you could comfortably say that I pushed past a normal limit. Mm. But by the time you realise that you get into that point, I had about 15 to 20 Ks to go. So by then it's like, yeah, I can just grit it out <laughs> for the next couple of hours and get this done because I was moving so slow. But, um, so, yeah, but I've never, I haven't got to a point where I've done serious injury, like nothing I could recover from short term.
0: Yes. Because you've got
1: yes. a, a few big things
0: coming up, which we're going to move <laughs> on to. Okay, I want to draw out one other thing that you said when we were talking about that selection process and you're talking about going into, into the room and you either get on the plane or don't. You said you get to a point where you, you're so tired that there's no emotion. Now, in the general, let's generalize a little bit. In the general world, when we see people get tired, we see people get really freaking emotional and a lot of the time it's you know i remember when i was a kid and mom and dad say right you're tired just go to bed like you know how
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: explain that maybe a little bit mate like how when we're in a state of fatigue do we do we remove the emotion and and, and almost keep a, a rational mind maybe
1: uh, actually it's probably more of just an individual thing there. Um, right. cause the majority of people, cause I obviously observed a lot of selection courses after that. Um, and yeah, it, when you're fatigued, a lot of my research sort of goes into this as well. Um, yeah, your emotional regulation goes out the window. So you become really poor at actually controlling emotion and everything does become negative a lot faster. So a lot of the guys will actually break down if they're not successful, um, sort of thing. But up until that point, like for me, because I was just such a state of fatigue, it was sort of like went in like just the first feed in the first few days, like you're happy for it, but you're not super excited. It's just like, oh, thank <laughs> God for that. There's some food. Um, sort of, and then when I was going into it, the interview, it's kind sort of like I hope I'll get through. Um, but they're really good at filling you into self-doubt the whole way through the selection course. So you, when you go in there, you're not sort of overly optimistic. You just hope you haven't made too many errors throughout the course. Um, but for me, it's, I guess it's kind of it might just be an individual thing where, you know, I'm just, and I get accused of being non-emotive by a a number of people, most of my life um, sort of thing. So, (laughs) (laughs) but I guess maybe that is one of the benefits where I can stay a little bit more rational at times rather than being emotional. Um, But yeah, for me, when I'm heavily fatigued, it's kind of just becomes non-emotive where a lot of people, you're exactly right. They become really negative emotional. Yeah. Find it really difficult to regulate that emotional response when they're so fatigued.
0: Mate, you've done obviously a lot, a lot of work, and and and, and again, we'll go on to it. You're doing a, a PhD along a similar side, but on, on in the psychological side of human performance. What made you interested in that in the first place?
1: Yeah, it's kind of. I went in down the, I went down the physical side first. I did. Uh, a bachelor's in exercise and sports science and a master's in strength and conditioning. And I was collecting data on the selection course at that point in time. So I was working within a human performance program and none of the physical data really matched any of the outcomes. Like there was absolutely no relationship between physical performance and performance on selection. So we are getting these really fit guys that would withdraw early. And then there's these guys who turn up and they're borderline in physical shape, but they get to the end, no problems. Uh, So I'd always known it was a lot more mental than physical. And then I started looking more around the mental aspect of physical performance around sort of perceptions of fatigue, uh, sort of started looking at how pressure impacts your physical performance and then how sort of the motivation works, a lot of the mindset sort of stuff, into psychology and sort of a lot of neuroscience now as well. you know because to, to answer the questions around physical performance and how people how and why people do things it's kind of all one science like it's one we're one person or one organism we're not separate sciences mm. internally so it kind of just took a natural progression down into these other sciences so um i don't delve too much into psychology enough to understand how people perform under pressure and how to prepare them for pressure but as far as a lot of the other mental health and all these sort of things, I don't go anywhere near that stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> interesting, mate. You said something there that, that I want to pick up on as well that I find quite interesting. We often hear about three sort of different states, don't we? We say like our, our physical capacity, mental capacity, and emotional capacity. And we're almost yeah. we're massively separating them. And and you said it really well, mate. We, we're actually one. We're one body. We're one human being each of us how do why do you think we we separate it out and and i mean it's interesting you said like some of the really fit guys turn up and then they crumble in not just in 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 special forces selection in life right like some of the biggest most buff guys i know are the biggest pussies i've ever seen you know and and, and, (laughs) they just give up so easily and it's like how did you get those muscles and obviously they injected themselves whatever but you know it's like so Why? Why do you think we're a lot
1: of people, or a lot
0: of a lot of people writing books and stuff, mate? We're always separating these things. Why do you think that happens?
1: Yeah, this is probably just my thoughts on it more so than anything um, beyond that. But I kind of look at it is that it has a lot to do with qualifications and education, this sort of thing. So you know, we break up all our human sciences into their different sort of silos for qualifications. So you've got sort of exercise physiologists, you've got your Uh, physios, your psychologists, all these sort of things. So they're all this separate educational pathway. And then they go out into like a specific career. Um, And then, you know, people will go into expertise. And then within those careers, they have their certain sort of lines that they'll move down, sort of specialties and that sort of thing. Um, And then when you look at it from a marketing perspective and these sort of things, like a good business model is being an expert at a certain specific thing. Like even doing a PhD, I'm narrowing in on one specific thing where, you know, like we're much bigger than that. Like people are really, really complex is my thoughts. And so, you know, like when we try and profile or we sort of put them into categories and that sort of thing, I think it's just an oversimplification of what people are um, sort of thing. And I kind of look at it around very much primitive drivers. So what are our primitive sort of threat systems? You know, what, how do we see things on a very primitive level? So that more limbic system, how does that influence what we're doing? And that starts to look at more neuroscience and a bit of sort of neuropsychology around, you know, how are we seeing the world through our limbic system and our experience and our perceptions of what things mean and how's that impacting us? So, you know, to go back to your example for bodybuilders or even for selection, you know, why are people there in the first place? What led someone to that point? Are they sort of, moving in a direction where they're trying to achieve something or are they moving away from something? So I think a lot of people are actually moving away from a discomfort or a sort of scarcity around something, which is driving them into these behaviours. And then when you put them under pressure, like there's no motivation or purpose underneath it, so they crumble. I mean, like a, a lot of people are doing things, I think, to avoid pain rather than to move in a positive direction.
0: That's a really, really interesting way of looking at it. They're, they're moving from a certain pain in their life, be it a – to be honest, I see this quite a bit. Like a pain for someone that we might coach could be a, a poor relationship that they're not willing to address, and they're moving away from that into endurance sport to try and yeah. heal through that. But then they don't realize how tough endurance sport is or can be. And, and then they get in those extremely challenging situations and they stop because they've, yeah. just, they've just run rather than – and I, I think I, – I don't know, you've probably got some thoughts on this as well. I think if they could be successful in an ultra or an endurance sports if they first addressed that example I gave, poor, poor situation at home, if they put that to bed and got that foundation solid – then they moved into endurance sports, they'd probably be a lot more successful.
1: Yeah, 100%. Like, especially endurance sports because one of the things I really like about ultra-endurance and endurance is that you're on your own for a really long time. Like, and (laughs) by no means is it comfortable for that duration. Like, so you you ultimately ask yourself a lot of questions. I know you've done some really big uh, extreme endurance stuff as well. Like, you get into your head pretty regularly when you're on these things and you start asking yourself questions. So... Like if you don't have a strong purpose or motivation behind why you're doing it, then like once you start asking yourself tough questions, there's just, there's no answers. Like you don't have any answers for yourself where, you know, if you're doing it to try and prove a point or, you know, to achieve something that doesn't have a lot of value, then when it gets tough, like as soon as the pain outweighs motivation, it's difficult for people to go beyond that
0: when that, right, this is gold. when pain outweighs motivation, I used to just write a book of all of these little nuggets of gold that you're putting in here.
1: Yeah. Well, even like when you talk about resilience, so I don't even look at resilience as being an attribute sort of thing. So for me, resilience is more about someone's interests versus what they're willing to pay for. It. You know I mean? Like, cause we'll talk about, and everyone talks about it in context of what they're doing. So like if you use teenagers, for example, people will say teenagers, might not be that resilient because, you know, they can't stick to a schedule or they can't do this, they can't do that. Yet they'll go sleep on the side of the road to get tickets to their favourite rock concert for two days. Yeah. You know what I mean? So can you say they're resilient or they're not resilient or does what you want them to do just have no value to them? Yeah. So like even resilience I sort of look at as it's, if someone wants something, they'll go through a lot to get it where if they're doing something that doesn't have much value, then, you know, they fold pretty quick.
0: Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's totally true. I often say that with, with people that are extremely overweight. Like, they have something quite special because to get that overweight is, is not actually that easy. It takes, <laughs> like, you've got to wake yeah. up, and, and, and those people that have listened to the show a lot have probably heard this, but I'm going to use it again. Like, you've got to wake up day after day feeling like absolute shit and continue eating shit. Like, that takes a special kind of mindset to get yeah. you know, 50, 60 kilos overweight and same with, with, with people that, that, that abuse alcohol or, you know, have, have weight gain from alcohol. Like you've got to have a lot of hangovers to, to build a really good beer gut. And and that hurts. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty plain way of looking at it, but that's kind of,
1: it's reality, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah I think in some of those cases, and again, this is me theorizing a little bit is that, once you get into something where it's a known struggle or you know what surviving through that looks like, so day to day survival, like if you're an alcoholic and you wake up with a hangover and you know how to get through your day and what discomfort that is, so as soon as you're familiar with that, then I don't think it's that hard to continue doing it. What's hard is, I think, change because now there's an unknown. Yeah. yeah. So I see a lot of people, and this I think is fairly relevant to goal setting, is people will set a goal. And a lot of times the goal will be avoidance of something that they've got in their life. Like there's an experience that they just don't want to keep going through. Like uh, I sort of look at nutrition and exercise a lot of times is that's avoidance of something they're experienced. They just don't want to experience that anymore. So the solution is to lose weight or get stronger or whatever it is. And then once they start changing or they try and change behaviours and it gets difficult, they know what the old struggle used to look like. They're familiar with that. And it's easier to go back to that when things get tough you know i mean like the change hurts more than what the discomfort they're trying to escape was so you know like if you don't i don't think if you've got really strong motivations for behavior change for goal setting then you're just never going to get there which is probably why it fails so much
0: absolutely mate let's move on to some of the goals that you've set achieved obviously being in the special forces pushing yourself it 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 if it wasn't in your DNA before you went in to, to do extreme challenges in extreme places, it definitely was ingrained in your DNA in, in those 18 years, mate. But you've done some, some incredible things, Endurance, Ultra. You're, you're going to do, well, COVID permitting. You've got some plans for some stuff in, in, in 2021. Talk to us about a few of these things, mate, because I'm not sure if anyone's, well, People are going to believe it, mate, of course, but incredible. <laughs> like, one thing I always say is I'm good in the heat, mate. I can run in deserts. I'm, I'm real good with that. But holy shit, 750K through the Arctic winter. Like, mate, talk to us about some of the stuff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so like a lot of things, it kind of just started off with... You know, just some general chat between friends looking at, you know, what races were out there. We're looking at, originally we were looking at Marathon de Sables, uh, and This is going back well over a decade ago, but logistically it was pretty difficult. And then a very similar race came to Australia. So I did that, which was 250Ks over, I think, six days. Okay. Same sort of format where, you know, they have a tent, you sleep there the night, they pull the tent down at eight o'clock and then you run to the next checkpoint. And then yeah. once you get there, you chill and go to sleep. Uh, and I did that and then there was some more chat around, okay, what's next? And I was just kind of looking at different races. And then you know, the Yukon Arctic Ultra came up through a friend and I'd never heard of it. And I looked at it and it kind of sat with me for a little bit. Cause that just seemed like something that was probably a little bit too much. I didn't really have that level of winter experience.
0: Mm.
1: And then I sort of sat on it for a little while and I thought, you know what, I'll just give it a go. And then, you know, I applied on it. was, or, uh, so I successfully applied to go on the race and then, you know, before you know it, I was there and I thought I'll just do it the same way I do everything. I'll get up in the morning, I'll start moving. Once little problems arise, I'll just solve that. And I'll get through to the first meal point and then I'll get through to the checkpoint and I'll get through the day. And then, you know, before you know it, you've covered the distance. Uh, And it took me around 10 and a half days to do it. Uh, And it wasn't too bad a race. So the conditions were really good. First Few days it wasn't too cold, the track was really hard, for the trail, so movement speeds were quite good. Uh, it was just really good conditions to do the race, so most of the days were sort of sunny, still cold, but just nice days. Uh, and then a few cold nights towards the end, uh, some really good northern lights, like the last few nights of the race, and it was just a really nice race. So I thought, oh, this is pretty good. So um, I sort of looked at the I did a ride trail invitational, which is yeah. a thousand mile, so applied to do the 350. Because uh, you have to qualify for the thousand, and the three hundred and fifty was actually the opposite. So it was bad weather, soft trail. It was almost a really miserable race. So I went in there with, um, I wouldn't say completely underprepared, but a little bit underprepared because I was taking this, my same understanding of the Yukon into Alaska, yeah. and they're completely different races. Um, but yeah, sort the, of like they're they're still tough events. Like I'm not going to lie, you're sort of walking for eighteen to twenty hours a day. You sleep anywhere sort of between four to six hours and you have sort of some rest stops pretty regularly. But um, yeah, like you, you're going for a long time.
0: Wait, someone might be listening and going, Holy shit. This guy served in the special forces for Australia for 18 years. God knows what situations he's been in. Yes. He's learned a lot of stuff on the way, but wouldn't it just be nice to hang out, have a couple of beers (laughs) with his mates but instead, you're going to, like, I don't know if you're in extremely cold situations like that when, when, when you're in the Special Forces, but does that ever cross your mind and think, geez, I've bashed myself, I've tested myself? Like, you've basically stood some of the probably the ultimate tests of, 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 of a human mate, and you're still going, why?
1: Yeah, I guess. My big thoughts are is if the day I stop exposing myself to a challenge or a bit of discomfort, then I start to degenerate. You know what I mean? So, like, it's 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 like physical training. Like, you have to do a little bit each day to continue to develop. Like, without a stress, there's no adaptation. So, as soon as you remove stress, you just sort of detrain or there's a maladaptation. So... Like, I'm quite happy to continually confront things. Like, I don't know if they will continue to be as excessive as what they are. Like, there will come a point where my challenges will drop right off yeah. sort of thing. But, yeah, like, there are days where i wake up and I'm just exhausted. Like, I feel like I need to sleep for a month. Like, I sort of look and I go, I'd just love to go into the bush with a swag and go to sleep for a week and then come back and take things on. But, um you know, they might just be an off day because a number of factors go on with recovery and then the next day I'll be right again. Like, all right, and I'll just sort of stay on path. But um, I don't know. Like, while ever I can, I'll still continue to confront challenging things. You know I mean? I just think the day that you opt for comfort, you start your decline in life. Um, you know, and you I think it's that- still got a long time to go in life.
0: <laughs> do you think do, – do you ever – see it from a a, maybe a spiritual side mate that your calling in life is this is these sorts of challenges be it initial selection for the special forces spending 18 years in the special forces then you know then moving into like ultra endurance do you
1: think do you ever sort of theorize and think yeah this is this is what i was put here for um no not really to be honest um I don't know, like, I sort of, I was really quiet about most things I did for a long time. And then it's only just been sort of the last year or two where I sort of started talking to a few people. And, and then, yeah, people were like, wow, you know, you need to talk about some of the shit you've done. Yeah. Um, like, when I was in Special Forces, it wasn't really achieving a lot. Like, once I got in, I spent most of my career with the attitude of, like let's go to work and try not to fuck shit up today. you know i mean like you just working really hard to be a competent team member or be reliable within those sort of teams so for me like it was just you know being a good member of that team and contributing to the team um you know because there you sort of the teams are bigger than any individual sort of thing like it's a unique organization or a workplace and then i sort of was doing challenges while i was in there um because I just enjoy that sort of shit. So I did some CrossFit stuff as well while I was in there, do you know, different events here and there, some triathlons, some other stupid shit um, that was sort of in the local area. As you, know, you get all these competitive events that go on that have grown over the last 10 years that just sort of do some of that from time to time. And then when I've got out, it's sort of, I don't know, I don't think it's a calling. It's probably more just an interest to see you know, what, I can, what is a human limit Sort of, you know, like, what am I truly capable of? And then I sort of look at it a little bit of, you know, just because when I look at it, if someone's gone from Anchorage to Nome, then why can't I do it? There's no reason why I can't do it. Maybe my preparation will be different. So I'm not, I didn't earn the right to get there. Um, It doesn't mean I can't change preparation and get there again. And then I look at things as well as like, if someone, if no one has got there, well, maybe I just know, or maybe I can learn more than what they did and prepare a little bit better to get there. You know what I mean? Like, at one point, you know, everyone talks about the four-minute mile as an example, but it's true. Like, at one point, you couldn't do that. I think just recently, some dude has crossed Antarctica complete for the first person to ever do that, which I thought was impossible. So, yeah. you know, sort of things that no one's done. It's like, well, what stops me from being the first? Yeah. yeah. Probably a lot in reality. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't hurt to ask those questions from time to time.
0: Absolutely, mate, and and, and go and test it. I mean, one of the big components here, and and I'm kind of going to split things again, is is that mentality and that mental toughness. And I think a question that we're being asked more and more or is being challenged more and more is, how do we train mental toughness or can we train mental toughness? And I'm sure you've got some different thoughts on that as well.
1: Yeah, I think we can. I think uh, it's, to be honest, I think it's easily trained. And I think it, like if we, I just take a very simplistic look at it. It's like physical training. So yeah. if you go out and you expose yourself to a low level threat, because I look at it sort of threat fear sort of thing. So it's very much along the line of my PhDs, how we identify threats sort of, or the perception of a threat. And then when that threat presents as a physical threat to us, then it invokes a fear. Yeah. Um, so like if you're not willing to go out and do something that makes you feel uncomfortable and it's a threat that makes you feel uncomfortable, mm. then you're not going to grow sort of thing. So, you know, like we're in a society now where we seek comfort. Like if people will sit in an air conditioned house where it's temperature controlled, you know, a lot of times they can get to their car without actually exposing themselves to the, the outside and they drive to work. And a lot of times you can go to work and then get in a lift and go up to your office. So you never actually touch fresh air throughout your day unless you make an effort to go outside your house. You know, I mean like where if you deliberately expose yourself to some discomfort, then you're just adapting and developing the ability to respond to that. You know, and as you go through your day, you're going to be presented with problems and the better you are at solving the problems, the tougher the problems you can face where if you just reduce all your threats and all your discomfort, your threat detection system doesn't go away. It just looks for something new. So the more you reduce what you're exposed to, the lower the level of threat or the lower the threat intensity that it focuses on where you get to the point where now, you know, full stops start to become anxiety arousing because you've just exposed yourself to nothing. So, you know, I sort of look at it, it starts with kids. You know, kids have to go out, they have to play, they have to fall over. And there's a lot of people that promote that sort of thing where, you know, we've lost the art of playing kids and they just need to go back out and be kids again, Mm. sort of learn how to hurt themselves and get over it. And then we slowly give them the tools to get through life. Mm. You know, like you don't really, I don't think you have to expose kids to any excess adversity. I think life throws enough at you as you go through. It's more just not protecting them from discomfort. I
0: think that the same Around adult plays is is quite important as well. Like as adults, we need to go out and play and, 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 and run in the, not run but just walk in the wild and and maybe fall over and you know topple down a little hill and stuff like that. And I need, I, I know some days when I, I go out to the mountains, I just love jumping around and playing and you know it's like and mom's like, oh you're just a big kid, and I'm like, well yeah, you know, and and I think, <laughs> it's, I think it's, I think it's I think it's healthy. Mate, we hear a lot with, in, in, in military terms and related to the military, post-traumatic stress disorder. We, I also believe that that comes from, I don't think it's, it's, it's sort of exclusive to people from the military. People definitely have that. It's just probably not spoken about as much when maybe they do events, challenges and, 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 and things like that. How do you, the question I want to ask is from from your perspective, you've obviously been in in, in very high stressful situations, then come home, you've done races, challenges, and then come home and and almost decompressed. Do you have a sort of a go-to strategy to make sure that you recover as as one being? taking into consideration, like, obviously, physical, mental and emotional pillars of your, of your, of your body when you've come back from a high-pressure situation?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I've always intuitively done it for some reason. Like, yeah. as I've gone through and educated myself, sort of thing, I've started to get an understanding of all the factors that are involved in making sure you recover and giving yourself space to recover. Because, um, obviously, if you're exposing yourself to stress, then you need space to recover. Like there's no adaptation if there's just continued stress. It's just to get beat down. Um, So I've always been a good sleeper. Uh, So that just came naturally to me, thankfully. Um, But I've always made the opportunity for good sleep routine as well. So that's always been deliberate. So, you know, they talk about in the military, is sleep when you can because you don't know the next time you're going to sleep. So I've never really deliberately, (laughs) other weekends and those sort of things, I've never deliberately sacrificed my sleep. Um, and thankfully, I grew up in a time where you know you couldn't stream TV shows and there was no phones and these sort of things. So like you just went to sleep when it was dark type of thing. Like you watch a little bit of TV, you go to bed, you get up, there was no distractions around it. Uh, yeah. And then when I was on operations, it was always good sleep. Like If we weren't working and I had a window to sleep, I'd make sure I'd get good sleep. Um, and at the time, I knew it was important in make sure I was ready for the next day. And I didn't understand how much of a positive emotional impact sleep has, sort of thing, like without sleep, then you just carry emotion from day to day and it just makes things a lot worse for you. Um, Physical training's always been another big one, like good training routine. So I've always kept that, like even when I was away, if we had a busy operational cycle, I'd always make sure that I had 15, 20 minutes just to do something low level, a bare minimum. So there was always that routine around exercise and sleep and then just always tried to eat fairly well and look after myself um but yeah even now i'll deliberately have a lot more strategies around recovery sort of things so you know, as you get older you gotta be a little bit more deliberate with these things yeah. it doesn't mean you can't you have to stop doing things you just have to make sure that you're creating the space to recover and you're doing what you can because you can't really cut corners when you get older because your body just doesn't recover as quick um so yeah like sleep is something i'll never sacrifice now uh, yeah. i'm in a position where i can nap during the day fairly frequently or fairly yeah. regular so I'll <laughs> oh, what a privilege, right? <laughs> yeah, again that's around some deliberate decisions, yeah. um sort of thing. So I'll do that, I'll try and eat fairly healthy. Like I still enjoy social outings and that sort of stuff from time sure. to time. Um but yeah, like I'll go out and like I said, I'll expose myself to challenge, but I'll make sure I've got the space on the other side of that to recover.
0: So that's the yeah, that's the biggest learning there mate you're you're incredibly educated as as i've sort of spoken loosely about you you've got a you've got a degree in, in in exercise and sports science you've got a master's in in strength conditioning and you're now also studying a phd and i don't want to screw this up but integrated cognitive and psychological physiological training interventions for peak performance is that right have, I, have um, I screwed it?
1: Up? Have I butchered it? And, uh, that's pretty close. So that was I did a masters in research after the masters in strength and conditioning, uh, <laughs> <did a> obviously <laughs> integrated part of the PhD. So that was the first part of that, where the PhD is looking more around uh, preparing sort of elite performers for high consequence environments or high pressure, high consequence environments. Um, sort of thing. But it, like, if when I left school, I would have told you that I was never going to university. So I left school, uh, and I think I got about. 25% or something in my year 12 exams. So when I left, I went and became a cabinet maker and joined the army. So I would have adamantly said that there's no more education on my horizon. And then when I got older, sort of interest changed. You know, but I think at 18, you're probably not mature enough to choose your life path. Yeah. Uh, people kind of try and force you into it, but you don't really know what you want to do for the next 60 odd years or 40 years, whatever it turns out to be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I sort of got to a point where I thought, okay, I want to go and get educated on it, and I was a bit dubious about how I'd go initially, but it's like most things, if you put the effort into it, you can create the ability to learn, and because you're a little bit older, I was able to put it into context, and I was able to learn information fairly easily, so um got a PhD, I'm sort of learning a lot more stuff now, so there's times where I'll just be looking at the computer, trying to work out how I'm going to solve this little problem, sort of thing, but... You know, I don't think there's not too much you can't solve if you make the effort, I don't think. Right. Very,
0: very cool. And, and, and I think quite inspiring for people as well, like folks that are listening that maybe didn't have an interest in education. Like the way that you speak and, and, and the knowledge that you have now is, 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 is wild, mate. So, you know, there's a lot of motivation <laughs> for that. Yeah. Mate, you've mentioned your wife, I think, once. But these support systems and the people that you have around you, you've mentioned as well, that, that environment. Talk to us a little bit about your family, how important they are, and how you perhaps I don't like the word balance because I don't think it's it it is a balance, but yeah. you know, you're you're a family man, you you know, how do you put all of this together?
1: Yeah, so early on, uh it was just me and my wife sort of thing. So we were together for maybe six, five, six years before we got married. Um, right. I don't know whether she'll listen, so I might not get in trouble for not knowing. Um, but yeah, like she was like without that support, you couldn't do what you're going to do sort of thing. Like it, what I was doing was literally a single man's job, to be honest. So you need someone who's very supportive, very understanding just because the amount of time you spend away, where you go and the things you do, like they're sitting at home for months on end, not knowing where you are. You know, like in the early days, we'd call them maybe once a month to talk to them. Uh, we couldn't even say much. Like we couldn't talk about what we're doing, couldn't say much. And then, you know, they might hear a couple of weeks later that someone's been injured. And yeah. if they didn't know that person, they wouldn't get told. So they knew that if they didn't hear any news, that was good news. But it still doesn't stop people from wondering, like, you know, was I, would, would I have been close? You know, was I there? Was I not there? Am I okay? This sort of thing. So, like, it takes a massive toll on the partners. And I was always adamant i wouldn't have kids while i was doing that sort of thing i just didn't think that was an environment to bring kids into because i just didn't have the time to dedicate to raising them properly and i thought if you're going to bring people into the world you need to raise them properly um so we sort of and she was busy with her own business at the time so she was running a crossfit gym that she sort of started from nothing built that up so that sort of kept her pretty occupied Uh, and then we got to the point where later in my career and sort of where she could take some time from work we sort of thought okay well now we'll have some kids where things are quieting down Uh, and we had two little boys and not long after that is when I sort of looked to transition from the military sort of thing so I just wanted to be I didn't want to be an absent father because I just know that that doesn't go well like it's it's not all bad but I just didn't want to take that risk so uh, I left went into a job in sport for a couple of years and now i stepped back just to look after the kids full-time um, but, yeah, they're definitely big drivers in a lot of what I do. So one of the big reasons I stay active is so that when they're 20 to 25, they can't kick the shit out of me that easily. <laughs> so, you know, they're going to have to work to put one on me. So.
0: <laughs> well, I think uh, I think that's like a lot, of, a lot of fathers, isn't it? A lot of motivation is so I can, uh, I can continue. I still remember some of the bets that I used to have with my old man and it'd be like, it'll be you, – you'll – you won't. It'll be 18 before you beat me at squash mm. and stuff. And you know, <laughs> literally every week was like, right, let's play squash, let's play squash. And it's like the worst bad he <laughs> ever made. So, yeah, that's um, that's pretty. Yeah,
1: probably beat me long before that. But at <laughs> least I'll try. I'll have to work for it as long as I can before it comes to me.
0: Mate, honestly, absolutely awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of going to wrap it up, mate, and I'm going to wrap it up with, yeah. with a question that I we I ask a lot and. I know you've shared a lot, mate, but if if you could put everything you've learned, and I know this is a really tough question and it really gets people off guard, but if you could put everything you've learned and serve up one parting piece of advice, your best piece of advice for the listeners, what would that one thing, you're only allowed to leave one thing with us, what would that piece of advice be?
1: Uh, Actually, I guess that would be, don't be afraid to be uncomfortable. So you know, like a lot of people will let all their dreams go because of fear, you know what I mean? Like fear is the biggest barrier to people achieving what they want, so a lot of that is just around sort of um, fear of the unknown or fear that they're not good enough or fear that they can't make it, so, you know, and all that is a discomfort, so you, just, you have to stop being afraid to be uncomfortable, awesome. you know what I mean, like, so that's my big thing and I'm doing a lot of work in that space at the moment to try and get some stuff out there for it but yeah for me that's the big thing like life's not meant to be easy it's meant to be enjoyable but not easy so you know you just got to go out and get after it
0: mate you're an absolute champion thank you so much Dan so much so much good information there I'm sure folks need to listen to that a couple of times to pull out all those all those golden nuggets mate but thanks for talking to us so openly and, and, and sharing such valuable stuff it's really cool
1: Yeah, no, it was a real pleasure, man. I really enjoyed that chat.